0: Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast of La Trobe Asia, where we examine the news, events, and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. In today's podcast, we're running a critical eye over the first year of the government of Narendra Modi. And with us, I'm very pleased to have Professor Ian Hall, a long-time India watcher, Professor of International Relations at Griffith University. Thanks for joining us, Ian. Thanks, Nick. So we're at almost 12 months, 26th of May marks 12 months to the day of the election. How would you kind of assess the first 12 months and perhaps use what the Obama Administration apparently does is they give themselves these sort of grading reports, you know, an A-plus or a D-minus and the like. So if you had to give them a letter score like it's a primary school, what would you score them and more importantly, why?
1: I think you would have to score them at about seven or so. <laughs> it's a bit of a challenge because expectations obviously were extremely high at the start of the government and I think there was a view in the electorate and also in some of Modi's high profile supporters that there was going to be some major changes particularly in terms of accelerating economic growth in India and those haven't happened. The budget was a bit of a damp squib, we haven't seen as much action on economic issues as we might have expected or as were expected by the electorate And so I think a seven is reasonable, given that there's also been extraordinary activism in other areas like in foreign policy.
0: There was an interesting piece in one of the Indian newspapers looking at big economic indicators comparing Modi to the second term of Manmohan Singh's government. And in many respects, Singh's government first year achieved more. And of course, there's these bigger questions around the broader economic context. Whether you look at GDP growth, whether you look at import-export figures, whether you look at investment, everything seems to be not tracking as they might have expected. Are there any particular reasons why you think that might be?
1: You're absolutely right. If you look at the numbers, we might be seeing between 7 7.5% in economic growth and GDP growth this financial year. And although the expectation seems to be that that will tick up to about 8%, maybe even 8.5% and in the next two years, 7 to 7.5% is at the lower end. If we look at the stock market performance as well, there's a kind of lack of confidence there, I think, in, in Modi's government and in the economic prospects for the country. Economic growth is a little bit higher than it was under Mahan Singh, but we could attribute that to the very low oil price. There's a big change there. In general, though, India's consumer confidence doesn't seem to be terribly high. Its farming sector, which makes up a big sector of the economy, has not done well. There have been problems with the rains, and obviously Indian agriculture is very rain-dependent. The monsoon wasn't good, doesn't seem to be good, the one that's coming along. So there have been some real problems there, and although inflation has come down because of lower energy costs, and that's helped as well as the prices themselves, we're just not seeing as much economic growth as people thought. The charitable interpretation seems to be that Modi has tried to deal with some policy problems that are kind of low-hanging fruit that he's been able to deal with, loosening some of the rules around investment, for example those reforms take a while to flow through into the economy and to affect growth. So his reforms so far have been piecemeal, and you could argue that the growth so far has really been just to do with better global circumstances.
0: At the start of the government and now, there was a lot of criticism, particularly from BJP supporters who essentially were not given favour under Modi. And perhaps the interview that Aaron Shuri gave was pretty scathing. Two things to my mind. One was, The claim that Modi has no vision for the economy, and the other that they're sort of turning a blind eye to slash encouraging right-wing attack. Do you think this criticism is reasonable, or is this just the kind of ongoing grumblings of discontented, out-of-favor BJP types?
1: The difficult political context within his own party, and also in terms of his relationships with the RSS, the Swami Swamsavak Sangh, the the right-wing activist movement that backs the BJP. He alienated elements of the RSS as Chief Minister in Gujarat by sidelining some of their prominent members and he has arguably also sidelined some RSS, senior RSS people during the course of his last year as a national leader. Some people have argued, and I'm not sure how plausible this is, that Arun Shuri's criticisms were the criticisms of the RSS. He has also got problems internally His old patron who helped to put him in the position that he's in, L.K. Advani, apparently I've heard hates him is the word that's been used.
0: Technical term there. Yes,
1: and is jealous of his success. So when you've got party elders like that that are not necessarily on your side, then you do have serious internal tensions. And one interpretation of some of the unpleasant things that have been done on social issues. If we think about the RSS and other Hindu nationalist groups campaigning on eating beef in Maharashtra, on the so-called Love Jihad, the idea that, that Hindu girls are being converted to Islam by marriage, on Gar Wapsi, the idea of reconverting people from Islam or Christianity or Buddhism back into Hinduism. These sorts of social activism issues that have come up with the Hindu nationalist movement Modi doesn't seem willing to be able to control those. And it may be that that's the safety valve or that's them venting when they can't control economic or foreign policy or can't have as much influence as they'd like. So there are obviously internal tensions within the movement and within the BJP and that that may be affecting Modi's government.
0: Another criticism that you see fairly regularly, and that's something we talked about in a previous podcast after Modi's visit to Australia, and that's the sense that there's a whole lot of power concentrated in very small number of office holders, sometimes referred to as the Trinity, Chair of the Party, Shah, mm-hmm. Modi and Aaron Jaitley, the mm-hmm. finance minister. Do you think that criticism is fair? Is big decisions are made by a very small number of people? Or again, is this people chucking rocks?
1: It is clearly the case that Modi wants to rule like a a chief executive. He wants to have a board around him of both public servants and politicians that are supportive of his agenda. And he believes that having a team that's loyal to him and competent, and and their competence has been tested by him, is important. And he used that approach in Gujarat to great effect. And he takes a great interest in how public administration is done and how change is affected within governments. It's also the case, though, that Indian government tends to be highly personal. Nehru's government was highly personal. He didn't often trust or rely upon many of his ministers. And the same was true of almost all of his successors. Uh, It tends to be much more like personalised government, where particular public servants, who are loyal to the prime minister, tend to be those that are making the decisions and pushing change. So partly he's just governing within an Indian tradition. Partly he has centralised because he likes this more corporate CEO form of government.
0: In such a big country where you've got so much to do, do you reach that basic information overload problem where you just can't possibly be across everything because if you're trying to be the CEO that pulls the levers, when there's so much to do, you just run out of time, run out of information?
1: That's right to some extent. But Modi's kind of come up with some ways of dealing with that problem by all accounts. That he asks his public servants to distill their thoughts on a particular topic down to only a few PowerPoint slides and then present them to him in a very short space of time. He seems to control meetings very effectively and he seems to know what sort of information he wants. He also asks his public servants not just to brief him on the problem but to give him solutions and trusts them then in in those solutions. So the story seems to be that he deals with those problems of information overload and of the, of the sheer weight of problems that India faces by bringing in competent, trusted lieutenants and then empowering them and showing his confidence in them and trying to get them to solve the problems rather than pushing everything upwards. There's a tendency in all bureaucracies and there is a tendency in Indian bureaucracy to push up difficult issues to the top, to not take responsibility for those issues. We know that when Modi was running Gujarat, He said publicly and he said privately to his public servants, he wanted them to take responsibility. And if they made mistakes, that he would back them so long as they were trying to correct those mistakes. Now, there's some spin around that, of course, but this seems to be good management technique and quite self-conscious on Modi's part.
0: The perception may be that politically there's this small group of people making decisions, but actually he's focusing much more on public administration and bureaucracy and perhaps sidelining the cabinet, which may not necessarily be a bad idea, and empowering in that respect. I want to move to how he's traveling politically in the country because I think casual observers of Indian politics might have been astonished that about six or eight months after this whopping electoral victory, his party goes and loses in the capital city in Delhi late last year. Firstly, what accounts for that? And then secondly, how's he doing? Is that indicative of how he's traveling or is that a very peculiar situation in Delhi?
1: I think my view is that it's a very peculiar situation. Obviously, you can attribute some of that election loss to some dissatisfaction with the way that Modi's government had travelled in the first few months. The other thing to say is that Delhi, like a lot of national capitals, is an unusual city. It's unusually dependent on government, on public service and public administration itself. As we know from other such cities, they tend to be more left-leaning rather than right-leaning cities. Uh, It's impossible to imagine the Liberals winning Canberra or the Republicans winning Washington. It just simply doesn't happen. Then you also have a large transient population as well that has aspirations. And if those aspirations aren't satisfied quickly, they tend to to change their political allegiances quite fast. And we can't discount the personal factor there that Kejriwal, the the head of the Al-Madhmi Party, the Common Man Party. So there are a number of different factors, I think, but I think Delhi is a kind of a peculiar case. And there'll be some more test cases with other states that come up over the next few months and the next year and a half to come will be more meaningful, I suspect. Yeah,
0: I mean, you saw the trend generally where there's been state elections that the BJP has consolidated its position and Delhi does seem to be the outlier. No role in your account for the suit?
1: (laughs) Modi's sartorial style is irritating, I think. I think there are some people who find it an indication of egotism or megalomania the suit was a classic example of that. It's also become a little bit of a joke. As satirists yesterday were poking fun at, the, at his outfit in China, particularly his sunglasses. So it is becoming a little bit of a, a joke. But if people are talking about his suits, they're not talking about his political record. And, and that's arguably a good thing if things aren't going necessarily as well as you'd like.
0: So let's turn our attention to foreign policy because that's an area where we've been surprised at just how active Modi has been and at least at the surface level seems to have been really making his mark he's traveled an enormous amount in his first term i think by one account he's spent almost a quarter of his time out of the country big successful visits to the US to Australia to Canada the UK probably the, the most successful at least in terms of developing a r- remarkable r- personal rapport within Japan. So why is he spending so much time abroad? And do you think it's effective?
1: There are a number of different interpretations of this. The uncharitable interpretation is that this is about his, his ego, somebody who has to be taken into consideration. The more charitable interpretation, and I sit somewhere between the two of these, is to say that Modi is trying to build India's confidence, which is important in terms of getting the economy going. He's also trying to drum up investments in India and he has emphasised throughout these foreign trips, aside from the defence deals and so on, this concept of trying to make India a manufacturing hub in the way that China was and still remains to some extent. And so a lot of what he's been trying to achieve is to try and pull inward investment into India and to try and pull companies into in India. And in that sense, actually, it's a continuation of what he was doing as Gujarat chief minister, where he was one of the more travelled chief ministers and where, again, he focused on this idea of dragging in FDI and dragging in some manufacturing companies into Gujarat.
0: I've also been quite surprised at the extent to which, at least they're talking about, security issues, weighing in on things like the South China Sea disputes and not just kind of trade promotion, investment promotion, but to be taking positions that one might not have expected them to do. Do you think that reflects the fact that India is possibly feeling more secure at home?
1: I think it's a bit of both. I think it's now more obvious than it's ever been though that India's big foreign policy challenge is managing China and all that goes with China's rise. And so every aspect of the foreign policy, aside from the desire to boost economic growth, which is the top priority, all the other aspects of Modi's foreign policy so far have been trying to to manage the China challenge. So that involves trying to rebuild relationships with South Asian states. He's made visits to South Asian states that an Indian prime minister hadn't been to some of these neighboring states in 30 years, and he's prioritized that. He's been keen to go to Sri Lanka, for example, and try and encourage the new Sri Lankan government to move away from a sort of semi-alignment with China back towards a closer relationship with India. So in South Asia, he's really pursued a policy of kind of open-handedness, of saying India is might be big, but don't be threatened by us. We'll help you out if there's a natural disaster, as there's been in Nepal, and we will try and implement trade deals with you or infrastructure deals, even when they're not necessarily to our advantage, but they're to the region's advantage. But then when it comes to relationships with Southeast Asia and East Asia, it's quite clear that China is is uppermost in his mind. And... Following the US line on the South China Sea, is, is effectively India is now doing, is about drawing a kind of implicit analogy with the border dispute with India and saying, you know, we don't want any changes to the status quo through the use of force and recognising that these things are international problems. They're not problems, as the Chinese would argue, they're not bilateral problems China and some of its neighbours.
0: In his foreign policy, I think we've seen a reflection also of this domestic policy of it being really personalized and it's about Modi India is Modi Modi is India and he is you know, making these personal connections whether it's with Obama whether it's with Abe or even with Tony Abbott do you think that's a sustainable approach and having everything run out of the PM's office and being managed and achieved by the PM seems to be a potentially risky way of running things
1: I think again a bit like the way in which he's approached the domestic bureaucracy we have to bear in mind that modi has made some quite extensive changes to the foreign policy apparatus within india bringing in ajit doval as a former intelligence chief head of the intelligence bureau in the past as the national security advisor broker an almost unbroken tradition of having Ministry of External Affairs officers in the position of the National Security Advisor. Replacing the Foreign Secretary, the head of the Ministry of External Affairs with S.J. Shankar, who was a former ambassador to Washington, replacing that post just after the Obama visit to India in January was a, also a very significant move. Jaishankar is extremely competent, very smart, but doesn't lean towards the Chinese as some in the MEA do and takes a a much more realistic view of international politics. Some would say quite cynical view. In fact, some of his interviews have been extremely Machiavellian.
0: Yeah, fairly old school realist in his approaches. (laughs)
1: Exactly. He is trying to reform the MEA. He's trying to reform the PMO. So he's building an apparatus around him to make sure that this personalised foreign policy works. But remember what he's doing here in terms of leadership. Some leaders gather together their bureaucracy behind them and then move forward in lockstep. Other leaders leap out ahead and then say, right, your challenge is to follow me. And what Modi has been doing in some cases, say so with the relationship with the US, has been leaping way ahead of where the MEA is comfortable with being, and then saying, right, now it's your job to catch up. And that is a, a brave, courageous, to use yes minister type language, foreign policy to adopt. But so far, he seems to be paying dividends.
0: Which I guess brings to the question of ambition and capacity. That's always dogged Indian foreign policy. Do you think under Modi, India is going to be able to match its ambition and these markers that it's laying down with resources, with its capacity? Because that seems to be a perennial problem. What's your sense as to the ability to deliver over the longer run?
1: The Indian elite understand and Modi understands that only through sustained economic growth over a 20-year period can India really have the kind of weight in international affairs that it wants. I think they're pretty realistic about that. I think that the leaps that have been made, they're gigantic leaps in terms of Indian perceptions and they're gigantic leaps in terms of changing the way that India behaves but the deals that were done when Obama visited India were small change really compared with some of the others that the Chinese have done with other states in the region so there is a limit to the ambition as well I think the style is very bombastic and brash it's very different to Manmohan Singh and so it sometimes creates the impression that the ambitions are running way ahead of the capabilities but I suspect that Modi understands that part of this is a confidence trick It's not a criticism. Sometimes confidence tricks pay off in international politics. But also part of it is about trying to build that confidence, which is necessary to build India into the kind of economy that it needs to be if it's going to support an ambitious foreign policy. And remember, too, just the last thing on this is to say where Modi has pushed and not got anywhere, he's just stopped relationship with Pakistan, for example, he tried to put his hand out to Noah Sharif uh, right at the beginning of his government. He really got nowhere with Pakistan and so he gave up. Same thing goes with Sark. I think they're pretty realistic about Sark. They don't think that this regional cooperation is going to advance pretty quickly. So Modi goes in, exhorts everybody to act, but knows that action will be slow. Again, I think that we can be reasonably confident that Modi is competent in this space, much more competent than perhaps we thought he might be, given that he had no experience of foreign policy before he came into being Prime Minister. All
0: right, I think that's all the time we have. Thanks for joining us, Ian. Thank you very much, Nick. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast of Trobe Asia. Um, if you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can follow Ian Hall on Twitter at dr Ian Hall or me at Nick Bisnick.